God, we thank you for this moment. We thank you uh, that we are your people because you have made us your people. God, our desire is what we just sang, to worship you in righteousness. So I pray that you would work in us what pleases you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please turn to Titus chapter 2. That'll be our text this morning. Titus chapter 2. And as you turn there, I'll uh, take advantage of the fact that this is a time of year when people characteristically resolve to make changes in their lives. And it's a good thing to desire, to make plans for change. We should do it more often. Uh, But when you think about how you want to be different, what informs the goal you're aiming at? Hopefully your desire is to be more godly. But how did you develop your understanding of what godliness is? Is your picture of godliness something that you got from God? In his word. And significantly, for what reason are you pursuing this change ultimately? And how is it possible to actually attain growth in godliness? Using the way that the scriptures answers these questions, uh, we should constantly be evaluating our lives and resolving to pursue true godliness for God-honoring reasons with the power of God's grace available to us. And this is exactly the way that Titus chapter 2 instructs us. Um, Perhaps you see the title of this message, True Godliness and the Gospel of Grace, and you think, what has one to do with the other? Isn't God's grace grace because of our true ungodliness? That's true. But godliness and the gospel of God's grace have everything to do with each other. Because God's grace takes those who are ungodly and cultivates in them miraculously true, actual godliness in their lives. All by his grace. In this chapter, Paul gives us a vision of what true godliness is. What God is doing in his people by his grace. Tells us why we should pursue it. And then how it's possible to achieve. And we'll take the next couple of weeks to move through this important chapter. Because it's been a while, I want to remind you of what we saw in Titus chapter 1. Remember, Paul writes this letter to Titus, who is his young missionary assistant, and he left him in Crete to, uh, to use his own words, to put in order some things that were left undone in the young churches there in Crete. And Paul began by talking about God's promise, promise made in eternity past to give life for eternity future to a people he's chosen to win for himself through his son. And the fulfillment of this promise had begun to be manifest. It had broken into history. And it was being manifest in history as a word being preached at that time through his apostles. And now, through all who would preach the message that the apostles preached, the gospel of God's son, our hope of eternal life, as he puts it in the beginning of chapter 1. And because this promise of eternal life had broken into history in the apostolic preaching of the gospel, in order to protect that gospel, to safeguard it, and also to propagate it, 
Paul said, appoint elders in local churches. Elders who, uh, in their life, would show that the gospel was true, and in their teaching would be able to refute those who contradicted the true gospel. And qualified elders were necessary, we saw, because at the end of chapter 1, there were many unqualified men, both in their unholy conduct and their unorthodox doctrine, who were threatening and influencing these churches in Crete. And we put all of these aspects of chapter 1 together into one summary sentence. We said, the message of eternal life is here, so appoint elders who will silence false teachers. And then in chapter 2, Paul continues his effort to counter and ward off this threat of false teaching uh, that that spawns ungodly living. And in chapter 2, he begins to paint a picture of what a church marked by true godliness is. Would look like. So, if in chapter one, qualified leadership helps to protect the gospel in and for the church, Titus chapter two will see a second strategy for protecting the gospel in and for the church, and that is the personal holiness or the godly lives of her members. And we'll see this holiness is actually produced in the church by that very gospel that they seek to safeguard and proclaim. Uh, So look at verse 1 with me now, chapter 2. And this verse is introductory in nature. It says, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Uh, You'll notice that he starts this verse with a strong contrast. But as for you, in contrast to what I just told you about, that at the end of chapter 1, the teaching and conduct of the false teachers, teach contrary to, to those guys, to what they teach, to how they live. And in fact, many of the details that we'll see listed in chapter 2 are direct, directly opposite of how the false teachers were described. Uh, One commentator went so far as to say that the entire list of duties in the first part of chapter 2 are written in view of the opponents described in chapter 1. It's clear Paul has an explicit contrast in mind. Uh, So if Titus is being urged to teach contrary to them, to live contrary to them, we do well to quickly revisit them. Who were they? What did they teach? And importantly for us today, what was their vision for godliness? So our first main point is a pretense of true godliness. You could say a sham of true godliness, a form of phony godliness. If you remember these false teachers uh, wreaking havoc in the churches, they were Jewish inhabitants of Crete who for shameful gain were devoting themselves, as he said, to Jewish myths and the commandments of men. And specifically, they had an unhealthy preoccupation, this is important, with overt, external, uh, ritualistic, ceremonious conceptions of purity and defilement. Uh, We know this mainly because of the corrective Paul gives to their teaching in verse 15 of chapter 1. He said, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and consciences are defiled. So a man can achieve no purity before God if what he does is coming from a defiled mind and a dirty conscience. No matter what rituals he performs or external standards of righteousness he conforms to, Remember we said this was reminiscent of some of Jesus' teaching against the Pharisees. 
He said, Woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when you said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. To eat with unwashed hands, religious purity ritual, does not defile anyone. Later he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And we know Paul had to strive against this same type of error in his churches that he planted. Uh, We know this, he addressed a similar error that he addresses in Titus 1 At the end of Colossians 2, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Example, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Listen to this description. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So things that may have an appearance of wisdom and religion may not actually do anything to put a damper on one's ability to deny the sinful lusts of the flesh. In the letter to Titus, Paul seeks to deliver a blow to this same false teaching. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. True Christians are pure. And they've achieved that status not because they've kept any set of external, externally oriented religious commandments of men. They've had their hearts cleansed by faith, Acts 15 says. And their consciences are purified from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 9 says, but for one whose mind and conscience is filled with defilement, nothing is pure, he says. Nothing. It doesn't matter how pious it appears. Not pure. God judges the heart. Participation in ceremonies, rituals, observance of rules that seem to separate you from defiled things, not pure. Not if they're done from a defiled mind, a dirty conscience. Whatever is not done from faith is sin. See, the path to purity, the path to true godliness that these men in Crete, uh, these false teachers were proposing was essentially this, to use Jesus' words, paint the outside of you white. Participate in this or that ceremony. Consistently observe this or that religious ritual. Conform to this or that external standard of righteousness. Avoid touching and tasting things that supposedly defile you. But despite all of their devotion to these religious commandments... The end of chapter 1, Paul shows the form of this godliness was a pretense, was a sham, was phony godliness. Because in addition to their works of man-pleasing external religion, their lives were also marked 
by rank unrighteousness, which proved they didn't ultimately know God. Verse 16 reads, They professed to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Boy, this happens all the time today, doesn't it? Many will stringently subscribe to this or that ritual or an external standard of righteousness. All the while, their lives also demonstrate all manner of unrighteousness. They may be out of the public eye. Maybe it stays behind closed doors. Sometimes it may even stay within the walls of your own heart and your own mind. Here's an important principle. Legalism, true legalism, is not super piety. That's how we often think of it, isn't it? Legalism is a religious cloak for an unrepentant heart. It's not piety plus. It's a substitute for true piety. It's a shell of piety. Men have wicked hearts, and they're spiritually dead inside apart from God. You don't need to whitewash your walls. You need to be raised from the dead. And you need a new heart. You need God to do something for you by his grace that you can't do for yourself. That's why it's grace. You need the gospel. And God's gospel of grace is able to make you new from the inside out. And that's where Paul instructs Titus to go in chapter 2. He provides a rival picture of godliness, a picture of true godliness. And at the end of chapter 2, Paul will lay out beautifully the true doctrine that creates and sustains this true godliness in a person. This is a wonderful chapter of the Bible. Look at, look at verse 1 again. It says, As for you, Titus, you teach what accords with sound doctrine or healthy teaching. It's the same thing elders had to be able to teach in, in, in uh, verse 9 of chapter 1. So what are these things Titus should teach? Things that accord with sound doctrine. We hear that word, uh, sound doctrine. We might expect Paul to start listing like, things like uh, teach the doctrine of God, teach the understanding of a church, teach on the miracle of prayer, teach about how all the promises of God from the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ. But that isn't where he starts. What he starts to list first under this heading of things fitting for sound doctrine are things like this. Be self-controlled. Don't slander other people. Don't argue with your earthly masters. Remember the first verse of this letter, the truth accords with godliness. If it's not good, it's not true. If it's not true, then it's not good. So it shouldn't surprise us when Paul begins to detail things which accord with sound doctrine. He begins to give practical instruction concerning godliness. You cannot untangle sound doctrine and godly living. Um, I've heard Dan say several times, I know you've heard it at least once, because I've heard him say from the pulpit once, he's, he's riffing off of 1 Timothy 1, where Paul says the aim of our instruction is love. He says if there's no love in the church, then there's something wrong with the teaching. If we take Titus chapter 2 and we boil it down to craft a similar adage, we could say if there's no self-control among the members of the church, then there's something wrong with the teaching. 
Correct doctrine breeds correct behavior, true godliness. Verses 2 through 10 provide specific instructions concerning, here's our next main point, the form of true godliness. The form of true godliness. And the majority of the rest of our time today will be spent on this point. And because the majority of the first part of this chapter makes this point. Uh, we're on structure. Uh, you'll notice that this chapter uh, is broken up into instructions for several distinct groups within the church. Older men, older women, young women, young men, servants. And before we begin to look at what they say specifically, I think the fact that it's structured like this in and of itself is instructive. Uh, so consider this. What could it tell us? What could it teach us? Just simply observing the fact that there are distinct instructions for males and females. And within those categories for varying levels of maturity or age. Do you realize that there is an expression of godliness that is unique to men? And there is an expression of godliness that is unique for women? The shape of your Christianity the path you take in thinking about how do I follow Jesus should be formed in part by whether God made you male or female. There's a lot of overlap, to be sure. But the common root of godliness should manifest itself differently in some respects. So perhaps, perhaps we should have named this the forms of true godliness. How should you live in such a manner that your life shows that the gospel is good and true. In some respects, the way a man's life does this is different from how a woman's life can and should proclaim the same thing. Embrace that. Our culture hates that. But this is part of God's good and wise and praiseworthy design. It's part of how he's determined to display his glory, his manifold glory in his image bearers. Verse 2 begins by detailing the form of true godliness with instructions for older men. Look at it with me. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So, so there are two sets of three qualities here. And the first threesome communicates one main idea. That is, be restrained, temperate, controlled in thought and behavior, respectable. In many ways, this last term, self-control, is a good umbrella term um, for all three words. And actually, as we move along, I tipped my hand to this earlier, self-control is a good umbrella term for the instructions given to all of the groups. Paul will repeat this word again and again, even as he talks about the distinct expressions of godliness. There's a common thread running through them. It's self-control. Self-control, that, that's more difficult than um, the pretense of true godliness that was taught by the false teachers, isn't it? Self-control really is, to use uh, Jesus' words, righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. Um, note that in the second set of Three characteristics listed in verse 2. 
All of them stem off of the adjective sound or healthy. It's the same word used in verse 1. So it's fitting for sound or healthy teaching for older men to be sound or healthy in faith, love, and steadfastness. And you hear this, faith, love, and what do you want the third one to be? Hope, right? Well, yeah, that's good that you hear that because this, this triad does very much echo that refrain, faith, hope, and love. Uh, Paul associates steadfastness and hope frequently in his letters. Steadfastness is, is simply the patient endurance of a Christian who is confidently waiting for God to fulfill all his promises. That's biblical hope. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul thanks God for their work of faith, their labor of love, and then their steadfastness of hope. So in many ways, this is uh, faith, hope, and love, the remix here. Um, this, this set of characteristics is simply a sketch of basic Christian virtue, which is also uh, the pinnacle of Christian virtue a committed trust in God that endures, that gives rise to love of God and others. Uh, so here's how Dr. Ray Van Nest, a friend of the church, I've, as I've seen on the website, uh, succinctly summarizes these instructions, both sets of three given to older men. Quote, the, older pic- the overall picture of older men is of Christian dignity and a vibrant faith. Uh, you should adjust your picture of masculinity to conform with that. You may even need to adjust your picture of what it means to be a man of God to that. Right? You think of what is a man, and you think of uh, Rambo, right? Someone. <laughs> I hope you're not laughing because you don't, and you're like, what is wrong with that guy? Right? Someone who's, who's just ripped, and uh, he knows how to use powerful weapons, and he doesn't cry when powerful weapons are used on him. <laughs> or, or you think of what it, what it then is a man of God, and you think, oh, Billy Graham, a powerful preacher, or, or a monk, right? Adjust that. Preachers and monks can be men of God, thank the Lord, but if they are, it's not because they stand in pulpits or live in monasteries. It's because They're pursuing a dignified, respectable, self-controlled life of following Jesus and responding to sound teaching in faith and in hope and in steadfastness. Young guys, let me encourage you to make people like this your heroes. Find people whose lives are marked by a simple Christian dignity and growing faith and make it your aim. Say, I want to be like him. Dunking a basketball is cool, but it doesn't take a miracle to be able to do that. People who are doing this, it takes a miracle of God's grace. So men, according to this verse, this is what God wants from you. Just make an honorable pursuit of being a disciple of Jesus. And I hope that's both deeply challenging and incredibly freeing for you. It should be both. Um, Paul transitions to instructions for older women in verse 3. What could true godliness, proper for sound teaching, look like for them? Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, 
Uh, it's interesting that frequently this word translated reverent in literature outside of the Bible is used to refer specifically to the conduct of a priest serving in a temple, uh, priest-like. So given the context, that it's hard to be sure that Paul had that more specialized nuance in mind. So the more general reverent is, is good, or as the King James translates it, behavior as becometh holiness. But it's a high calling. It's a sacred calling, reverence and behavior. The conduct of older women should be set apart or devoted to God in a special way. It's like he says in 1 Timothy, in a parallel passage, women should adorn themselves with good works, fitting for those who profess godliness. How should a woman live if she professes godliness? Reverence. And Paul gives two specific applications of being reverent in behavior with respect to speech and drink in the next part of verse 3. They're not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Not slanderers. They should not self-righteously speak ill of others. Even or maybe even especially in their private conversations. Slander is a manifestation of, of pride. It's a way to exalt yourself. It's altogether contrary to love. So you should try to discipline yourself. Cultivate uh, a tongue that won't speak it, and an ear that hates to hear it. And older women, likewise, are also not to be enslaved to much wine. Clearly, that's not reverent behavior called for by this verse. That is reflective of the sacred position and calling the women of the church possess as Christians. But the rest of the verse also shows us uh, that older women will not pass muster, as it were, if they just keep their mouths shut altogether. So slander can't come out and wine can't come in. What should they do with their mouths instead? Look at the end of verse 3. They are to teach what is good. So in your conversation, it's good to focus on not slandering. But there's something higher you're called to do instead of that. Teach what is good. Don't just speak lovingly. Speak the truth in love. Um, other passages, just as a, as a quick asterisk of, of what this is not saying, other passages in the New Testament, uh, even in 1 Timothy, which Paul wrote at the exact same time he wrote Titus, uh, almost assuredly, they, they very clearly reserve the formal public teaching ministry of the word in the gathered local church for qualified men. So we know this is not what this verse is teaching. But Titus 2.3 here shows us that a prohibition on a certain kind of teaching in certain contexts is not a wholesale prohibition on teaching. On the contrary, women, and particularly, though not exclusively, older women, should seek to be teachers. Proverbs 31, describing the excellent woman, wife, it says she opens her mouth. So she's not always in learn quietly mode. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So what is the good that she's supposed to teach? Um, at first glance, it might seem that, that the details in verse 4 describe all of the content that Paul wants the older women to teach. So in this understanding, verse 4 explains specifically what is meant by this directive. Uh, so that would read like, teach what is good, that is, train the younger women to love their husband and children, etc., etc., 
Uh, but I think a better way to understand how these two verses connect is that verse 4 is, is the purpose or the result of teaching what is good. Not that verse 4 is a complete restriction on the good that they're supposed to teach. So, so with that understanding, uh, you put it together kind of this way. Teach what is good in order that you might train the young women in this way. And I think the NASB actually translates it, captures it well, by saying uh, older women should teach what is good so that they may train the younger women. Of course, the things listed in verse 4 are an important part of what Paul has in mind, of what the older women should seek to teach. But I think uh, teaching what is good is broader. Uh, So so here's the point I'm getting at. Um, Don't just aim to teach younger women how to live a godly life that's disconnected from the truth that fuels godly living. The truth that true godliness is supposed to be a living picture of. You know, uh, theology and doctrine is not the exclusive terrain of men. Because theology and, and doctrine is about knowing God, and knowing God is not for men only. It's interesting to note, Paul gives instructions to Titus uh, for all of the groups directly, except for the younger women. Those come indirectly through the direct instructions given for the older women. Now, I don't think this means that it's inappropriate for pastors or elders to to, um, directly instruct younger women in the church, but it does underscore the necessity of having women engaged in discipleship and in the ministry of the word, of teaching what is good, of teaching not only things fitting for sound doctrine, but also teaching sound doctrine. I think this verse shows us there's a special um, personal teaching and discipling ministry of the word that needs to happen in a local church for it to be healthy that will not happen if older women don't do it. Moving on from uh, verse 3 now. Be reverent behavior, teach what is good. Look at verse 4. So that they may train the young women to love their husbands and children. That might strike you as odd. Uh, Young women, do you know that you need to be encouraged to love your husband and children? You say, my children, no, I love them. My husband, yes, encourage me, right? Um, If you believe that you love your children or your husband the way God wants you to, then you have a too high a view of yourself or a too low of a view of love as God defines it. Love is essentially self-giving for the good of another. So what does it look like for a woman to relate to her family in a way that is not motivated by self-interest, but instead wholly gives of herself to pursue the good, as God defines good, of her husband, and the good, as God defines good, of her children? It's hard to express uh, what a noble and sacred 
and honorable and difficult calling is captured in those five words, loving their husbands and children. This is true godliness. And younger women need the help of older women to know how to do this. Older women have the responsibility to help younger women to know how to do this. I think both parties should feel responsible for seeking this out. Older women don't necessarily wait to be asked. Encourage as you have opportunity. Younger women, don't wait to be encouraged. Ask and give opportunity. Before moving on, I think it's worth pointing out that if we translate this verse in a really wooden way, it would literally read, train the young women to be lovers of husbands and lovers of children. You say, how is that different? Well, uh, the specification that it is only talking about one's own family is not made explicit. Now, of course, it's very obvious that the most prominent application here is for married women to love their own husband and their own children. But I think we can also uh, rightly take a step and apply this principle broadly to those who, according to God's good and wise plan and special calling, may not be married or are without their own children. All women can, can love marriage and children and engage in self-giving for the good of families. So following right after this, love of family, what is the headline expression of godliness enjoined upon young women? Look at verse 5. To be self-controlled. There it is again. Same thing called for in verse 2. What else? Look again at verse 5. Pure or holy. Working at home. Kind. Good. And submissive to their own husbands. I had a thought. No one's, no one's making Christian t-shirts with this verse printed on it, are they? Um. Maybe we should, I don't know. There are both very general uh, and very specific instructions here. Pure or holy, kind and good. A call for lives marked generally by holiness and righteousness. And then working at home and submissive to their own husbands create specific avenues or more well-defined channels for the expression of this true godliness that is unique to young women, particularly young married women. And it's in the home recognizing the husband's leadership in the home. Now, we can spend a whole sermon talking about what this means and doesn't mean, but Titus chapter 2 is not a whole chapter about that, uh, so we won't. Uh, Working at home, that phrase is actually a single Greek word here, homeworkers, and I think one main thing Paul has in mind is a contrast to a bad situation that he denounces in 1 Timothy. Remember, those two are written um, about the same time. They're very similar in content, content, Titus and 1 Timothy. So in Ephesus, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5, there are some young widows who had settled into a pattern of lazily meandering from house to house instead of working hard to manage the domestic affairs of their own household, their own family. The verse reads like this, they had learned to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. And you can see how that opposes the vision to be a home 
worker. That's, uh, that was 1 Timothy 5.13. Um, I appeal again to Dr. Ray Van Nest. In summary fashion, he says, Working at home does not prohibit working outside the home altogether, but it does indicate that Paul expects wives to carry the primary responsibility for the day-to-day care of their homes and children. And I'll uh, append to that that husbands, for their part, should try to lead and structure their families in such a way that their wives are not so overwhelmed with other responsibilities to the point that it becomes very difficult for them to do this. Now, we're all in different situations. I think we should also be slow to cast judgment on each other about what this looks like, this principle. But we need to make sure that this principle is playing itself out somehow in our families. It's God's good design for His glory. Uh, The last instruction in godliness for young women comes full circle back to where it started, which is her relationship with her husband. The beginning of verse 4, love your husband. The end of verse 5, be submissive to husband. Uh, Considering the New Testament broadly, we see that the free, glad submission of a wife to the self-sacrificing, loving leadership of a husband is a picture of the gospel relationship between Jesus and his people. Uh, One commentator, uh, maybe you've heard of him, his last name is Mounts. He wrote a really large Greek textbook that uh, all of you might be excited about buying now that I mentioned it. Um, He says this, By specifying one's own husband, Paul emphasizes that the submission is not of one gender to another, but of the wife to her husband. In both the husband-wife and the master-slave, which is coming up, relationship, Paul does not allow the former to demand submission, but instructs the latter to give it. That is a significant distinction. End quote. Wow, the world despises this picture of womanhood. Uh, We were with some friends over the Christmas break, and uh, our friends are, are, have as personal associates the people from Sherwood Baptist in Georgia that come out with all of uh, those Christian movies that you've probably seen, Fireproof and Courageous and Facing the Giants, da 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 And so uh, they said, they were telling us about the last time that they were with them. She was talking personally to the directors of these movies, and she was urging them, saying, you guys, you should make a a uh, sequel to the movie Courageous. I mean, telling a man to be a fireman and save people, that, that's easy. What takes real courage is to be a woman who decides against the grain of the world to devote herself to being a worker at home and a lover of her husband and children. Um, I don't think they're going to make that movie, but <laughs> so feel free to run with it. I'll, uh, I'll give you her name so you can give credit to her. And God can be trusted. Never believe the lie. This is the lie from the garden, that God is withholding good from us by his commands. It's not true. Um, so why are younger women to live like this? For what purpose? What's the goal? The end of verse 5 tells us happily. That the word of God may not be reviled. 
literally may not be blasphemed. So why live like this? It's for the sake of the word of God. What may seem hidden or insignificant or inconsequential actually matters for the honor of God's word. It's weighty, isn't it? I think in the context of Titus here, um, the word of God, that phrase, doesn't refer necessarily to the whole scriptures generally, but more specifically, it refers to the gospel message. If you'll remember in, in the beginning of chapter one, he says that this promise of eternal life has been manifest. How? As a word is being preached by me, Paul, by the command of God. So this word of God that Paul has in mind, I think, is specifically the gospel message. How God has worked salvation in Christ. So again, young Christian women should love their husbands, children, be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, submissive to husbands, ultimately, because this helps to tell the true story of the gospel. And older women, be equipped to encourage younger women along these lines. Remind them, how their godly relations to family honors the word of God. True godliness is for the purpose of the gospel. It's a living picture that the gospel is good and beautiful and true. And and really, I think it's right to understand all of the instructions given thus far to also have this purpose, not just those most recently given to younger women. Uh, We'll talk more about this goal for godliness Later, uh, perhaps not until next week, because Paul is actually going to restate this exact same purpose for godly living after giving instructions to other groups. Younger men are addressed next. Look at verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. There's that word again. Just like for older men in verse 2 and younger women in verse 5, here it is again. True godliness expresses itself and a self-controlled life. And in this instance, self-control is not merely an important part of the instructions given. It is the only instruction given for young men. I, I also uh, was mildly humored by that. Uh, the Proverbs teach us that the glory of young men is their strength. The Proverbs also teach us that there's something more glorious than strength, which is self-control. Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. Maybe one reason the Proverbs say that, that the glory of young men is their strength is because they characteristically lack self-control. Young men possess great exuberance. Uh, often. Godliness requires that they be able to restrain their energies and channel them for the glory of God and the good of others. True godliness in a young man looks like self-control. Now, still under the heading of instructions to young men, Paul gives personal instructions for Titus. And it's safe to assume that this is partially the case because Titus himself is a young man. 
But it's also true that part of Paul's idea for how Titus should encourage the young men to exhibit self-control is to live a life before them that's worthy for them to imitate. Look at verse 7 with me. Showing yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. Uh, So as a young man, and particularly as a young man, exercising leadership in the church, he tells them in all things, be an example of what it looks like to live a life filled with good works. That's a great question for all of you to ask of yourself. If someone followed you around in order to learn what it looks like for a Christian to live as a Christian, would their life be full of good works? This is just like the instruction Paul gave to Timothy, uh, another of his young ministry assistants. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. And then he tells Timothy how he's supposed to accomplish that. Rather, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Set the believers an example. Set yourself forth as an example in all things of good works. And like that instruction we just read for Timothy, Paul also gives special emphasis to Titus concerning his teaching and his speech. Look at the rest of verse 7 quickly with me. And your teaching show integrity. That is, keep watch over your motives. Don't be like the false teachers who, who teach for shameful gain. And dignity. Your teaching needs to be marked by a gravity or seriousness appropriate for teaching God's word. These are weighty things. And the back half then of verse 7 focuses on how, the manner in which he should teach. And the next verse begins to focus on what or the content of what Titus should teach. And sound speech or a a healthy word that cannot be condemned. And then Paul is about to give the exact same purpose, written differently, that he gave to younger women of why he should pursue this true godliness. And that's where we will pick up next week. Pray with me. God, I thank you that your grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all men, teaching them to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled and godly lives in this present evil age. God, I thank you that uh, when we had no true righteousness, that Christ died for the ungodly while we were yet sinners. And we know now that any true righteousness that our lives exhibit are only because we are united to Christ by faith. Apart from him, we can do no good thing. God, I pray that um, you would use this word and continue to use this word next week to uh, change us and to change us, help us to want to change for the right reasons, for your glory. And help us to know how to change according to the means you have provided, which is your grace and your gospel. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.